0: And now, Revival Fires International presents the Revival Fires broadcast with the dynamic evangelistic ministry of Dr. Tim Todd, a powerful voice for God and country. Welcome to this very special
1: July 4th edition of the Revival Fires radio broadcast. It is very clear as we experience the turmoil and chaos that seems to be infiltrating America that we are in desperate need of the hand of God to sweep across our nation like never before. We need to be reminded that there are prerequisites that we must fulfill in order for God to have complete reign in our country. Let's turn our attention to 2 Chronicles 7.14 as Dr. Tim Todd presents a timely message for America entitled, If My People.
2: If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's God's telegram from heaven for America today. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, amen. Amen. amen and amen. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, how many of you consider yourself to be one of God's people? Raise your hand. That means that this verse is for you and it is for me. Now, I wrote my name in this verse, and it is astounding at our personal The word of God becomes when you write your name in it. This is how my verse reads now. He said, if Tim Todd will humble himself and pray, if Tim Todd will seek my face and turn from his wicked ways, God wants to get personal with you if you will let him. Write your name in that verse and see how personal the word of God becomes for you. He said, if Tim Todd will humble himself and pray and seek my face, and turn from his wicked ways. You see, what we need as a nation here in America, we need first as individuals. We say that America needs to fall on her knees and on her face before God in repentance, and she does. But America starts with you and me down on our knees seeking the face of God with a heart of repentance. He said, if my people which are called by my name. He didn't say if the liberal news media would do it. He didn't say if the conservative talk show hosts would do it. He didn't say if Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity would do it. He didn't say if the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents would do it. God said, if my people, which are called by my name... God's not counting on the liberal news media. He's not counting on conservative talk show hosts. He's not counting on the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents. But God is counting on you and me that have been born again and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I thank God for every born-again, spirit-filled man and woman that is in political office. We need more of them. But hear me this morning. There is no political solution to America's problems. Our problems are spiritual. Therefore, they cannot be resolved by politics. God is counting on this church body. And if God is counting on us, let's give him something to count on. But let's break this verse down this morning and see what the Lord is requiring of you and me. First of all, he said, that we must humble ourselves. You know, that's hard for a lot of people to do today because here in America, we've had everything at our fingertips. Everything has been at our command. And for many people, it's hard for them to humble themselves because of the nice car they drive or the nice clothes that they wear or the nice house that they live in or the big bank account that they've had access to. Even some preachers that get a successful ministry and it goes to their heads. And God help individuals who think they don't need God because they think they're God. They walk, they they talk, they strut and act like God. They don't even want God to tell them what to do or when to do it, much less a preacher like this one. But if you want God to hear your prayers, first thing you've got to do is learn to humble yourself. For us to realize that the only good thing about you and me is Jesus Christ. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more of a sinner saved by grace that you realize that you are. So first of all, We must humble ourselves. Secondly, he said, to pray. We're not really ready to pray until after we have humbled ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about the pretty little prayer that you pray over your meals or while you're getting ready for work or a little bedtime prayer. I'm talking about you getting alone with God in your prayer closet each day and spending quality time with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about travailing in prayer as a woman giving birth to a child. You say, Brother Todd, that's hardcore praying. Yes, it is. But God's word says, as Zion travails, she brings forth her children. Let me break that down. As the church travails in prayer, you will bring forth children into the kingdom of God. And when you will begin to travail in prayer as a woman giving birth to a child, praying for your unsaved loved ones to get saved, praying for Holy Ghost revival to break loose in this church body, praying for God to come down and turn this whole area upside down for Jesus Christ. When you will begin to travail in prayer as a woman giving birth to a child, you're going to begin to see things turn around and take place for the kingdom of God. He said, humble yourself. He said, pray. And then thirdly, he said, seek my face. We're not really ready to seek the face of God until after we have humbled ourselves and prayed. But what happens is this. we get a lot of people in the church today that fail to consistently humble themselves and pray. Then when we find ourselves in trouble, we have to seek the face of the doctor or seek the face of the attorney or seek the face of the banker. Or seek the face of the judge. Now, every one of these positions have their place in our society. But hear me this morning. God can do more than any attorney. He can do more than any banker. He can do more than any doctor. He can do more than any judge. And we need to be seeking the face of God before we do these other positions. He said, humble yourself. He said, pray. He said, seek my face. And then fourthly, he said, turn from your wicked ways. God spoke to my heart so very strongly about this part of the verse, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But he said if we would do those four things, he would hear from heaven, forgive our sins, and heal our land. And, friend, we need to hear from heaven in America right now, all the way from your house to the church house to the school house to the courthouse to the White House. What America needs right now is an old-time, old-fashioned, sin black, hell hot, Judgment sure, eternity long, gun strike, Holy Ghost revival yes, yes. that will bring this nation to its knees in repentance right, before we are knocked to our knees in judgment. One way or another, America's going to our knees. And I'm convinced that if we can get America back on her knees again, we can get America back on her feet again. Yes, yes. People have always considered America to be a Christian nation. But any time that you live in a nation that has more places to get drunk than it does to go to church or to get saved, that nation needs Holy Ghost revival. Any time that you live in a nation that has more bartenders than we have preachers of every denomination put together, that nation needs Holy Ghost revival. Anytime that you live in a nation that is murdering between four and 5,000 babies every day with abortion, that nation needs Holy Ghost revival. Yeah. And anytime that you live in a nation where there's any place that is wrong for you to read this Bible, whether it's the schoolhouse, the courthouse, or the White House, that nation needs Holy Ghost revival. Yeah. And any time that you live in a nation where people get more excited about their ball games than they do their church services, that nation needs Holy Ghost revival. Would to God that people would get as excited in church as they do their ball games. I know people, and you do too, they'll go to these ball games and they'll sit outside in the hot blistering sun Or the rain pouring down in some parts of the country where it sleets and snows for hours at a time. You do something like that for a ball team, they call you a good fan. You do something like that for God, they call you a bunch of fanatics. God give us a bunch of fanatics in this church body that are willing to come to church no matter what the weather conditions are outside. You know something I've noticed about these ball games? It's that if somebody hits a home run or makes a touchdown or a slam dunk, that whole audience comes unglued And they give that ball player and that ball team a standing ovation. Hear me this morning. Jesus is hitting home runs every day. He's making touchdowns every day. He's making slam dunks every day. He's better than any ball player that's ever lived. He's better than any ball team that's ever existed. And he's better than any ball game that's ever been played. And we need to give Jesus, the King of Kings, more attention than we do our ball players. You know, something else I've noticed about these ball games is that nobody wants them to last just one hour. Oh, no, we want our ball games to go into overtime and double overtime and extra innings. I've never heard anybody complain about the length of the ball game. But some of those same people come to church, and the first thing they want to know when they get here, when do we get out? What time will this be over? We've got people in the church today that are more concerned with saving time than they are saving souls. Hear me this morning. Jesus didn't come to save time. He came to save souls. He came to get next to you, and he came to light your fire. Luke 19, 13, Jesus said, I'm going to leave, and I'll be back. But he said, while I'm gone, I want you to occupy. Now, that is a military term best understood by those who have served in the armed forces. The word "occupy" literally translates to be in charge, to be in command, to have dominion over. Now Jesus told his disciples, well, I'm God I want you to be in charge. He didn't say that to the Democrats or the Republicans or the independents. He said that to his people. You don't have to look very far to see that God's people have not done a very good job of being in charge. You can't hardly walk into a pizza place these days without feeling like you're walking into a beer joint. You can't hardly walk into a gas station without feeling like you're walking into a gambling casino with the video poker machines and the lottery tickets on the counter and the the other gambling devices. You can't hardly walk into a grocery store these days without feeling like you're walking without there being partial nudity on the magazine rack directly in front of your children's eyes while you're standing in line to pay for your items. But you know what's worse? That all of the sin is that we, God's people, have failed to occupy. In the church, we've been so caught up in the treadmill of our paychecks and our money-making and our pleasure-seeking and our worldly activities. We've been so caught up in the, the, the treadmill of our vacations and our retirement plans that we've lost sight of our purpose here on the earth. You and I are here as the body of Christ to live for Jesus, worship Him, and win people to Him. This verse that is timeless says that you and I are to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. But then fourthly, he said, turn from your wicked ways. Now listen close. Whatever it is in your life right now that is getting your time, your attention, your affection, your money, whatever that is, that is your God. What is it in your life right now that's getting your time? Your attention, your affection, your money. For a lot of people, it's television programs and movies. I know people that think nothing of sitting in front of the television set for four and five hours in one evening, but would they come to the house of God for four or five hours? For many people, it's sports activities and ball games. For many people, it is such a busy work schedule that they crowd God out of the picture. And whatever it is in your life right now that's getting your time, your attention, your affection, your money, That is your God. As a result of God's people not occupying, look what has happened to America. Right now, the abortionists are murdering more children than they ever have in the past. Homosexuality is at an all-time high. They've come out of the hideouts, come out of the woodwork, come out of the closets, and they're standing up and proudly proclaiming their their sexual impurity and perversion, even on prime-time regular network, with the likes of Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, and many, many others. Look what's happened to our public schools. There are 53.8 million students in our public schools. 40 million don't have any Bible at all. Now, I thank God for the work the Gideons have done by putting Bibles into the hands of young people and millions of Bibles. But the ACLU has launched an all-out attack on the Gideons. They said that if they had their way, the Gideons will never step foot on public school campuses to give Bibles to students ever again. I say if Tim Todd has his way, if the people of God have their way, let's get rid of the ACLU and keep the Gideons around. Make your rules. We're still going to pass Bibles out in the public schools of America. And this tragic plight on our public school campuses led me to design the Truth for Youth Bible. Many of you are familiar with this. It consists of the entire New Testament, along with powerful comic stories in the front section. These graphic novels, 100 pages, deal with the truth about things that young people are confronted with every day. We put these Bibles into the hands of every young person that will agree to give them to their friends in school that are not saved. In fact, over in St. Louis, Missouri, we had one young man that, that gave a Bible away to the biggest drug dealer on that school campus. He cussed that young person out and spit on him but sat down at lunch hour and read through all of the comics in the front section. One of the comics deals with the truth about drugs and drunkenness. When that day was over, that drug dealer gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and got saved. He quit smuggling drugs into a school and started smuggling Bibles into a school. Started a Bible club with more than a hundred students attending every Wednesday morning. That's the power of the Word of God. Amen? And it's going to take Holy Ghost boldness to stand up for God in these last days. You look at what happened to everybody that stood up for God in Bible days. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. Those three Hebrew boys were thrown in the fiery furnace. John the Baptist had his head chopped off. Stephen was stoned. The axe laid drip of the blood of Paul the apostle. Peter crucified upside down. They were sawed in two. They were burned at the stake. What's happened to you lately? Where are the battle scars that show that you really mean business with God? It's going to take Holy Ghost boldness to stand up for God in these last days. Let me give you another example of this. Not only that young person that gave a Bible to that drug dealer that got saved, but several years ago I had the opportunity to to, uh, deliver one million signatures to the Supreme Court justices with my dad, calling upon them to reverse the Roe v. Wade decision and give the innocent pre-born children the constitutional right to live. Well, we've got people today crying out for their constitutional right for choice. What about that baby's right to live? We flew into Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, to make that historic delivery. Up to that point, nobody had ever delivered signatures to the Supreme Court justices. We were joined by several other political and spiritual leaders, Dr. Tim LaHaye, uh, Dr. James E. Johnny Johnson, Senator Jesse Helms, Congressman J.C. Watts, and many, many others. We began climbing the steps of the Supreme Court, and then every one of us were compelled of the Holy Ghost to fall to our knees and pray. We did just that. We prayed for America. We prayed for the Supreme Court justices. We prayed for these babies that cannot defend themselves in their mother's womb. We finished praying. We got up off of our knees only to find out that we had been surrounded by a swarm of policemen and security guards. And ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN had their cameras rolling trying to get a story about religious fanatics being arrested for praying on the steps of the Supreme Court. We didn't know it was against the law to pray on the steps of the Supreme Court. Did you? One of the police officers walked up to us and said, you can't pray here. This is government property. We told him, as far as we're concerned, this is the people's property and this is God's property. He said, well, he said, where is your attorney? We told him we didn't have an attorney with us. We didn't think we'd need one, so we didn't bring one. He said, well, we're going to have to arrest you because our job is on the line. But you see, we knew our job was on the line too. God had instructed us to deliver those one million signatures to the Supreme Court justices, and we knew we couldn't do it in handcuffs behind bars in the local Washington, D.C. jail. So the police officers and the security officers took a few steps away from us and started discussing among themselves who was going to do the arresting it turned into a heated argument. And while they kept talking, we kept walking. We went on up the steps of the Supreme Court and we went through the first set of doors and immediately we were approached by the biggest policeman I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he looked like one of Goliath's brothers. He was huge. We had never seen him before in our life. And he called my dad by name. He said, Cecil Todd, I know who you are. I know what you've come for. I know where you need to go, and I'm going to take you there. That police officer took us through a giant set of brass doors where employees only were allowed to go through. We were granted an audience with all nine of the Supreme Court justices for 15 minutes. We were allowed to deliver those one million signatures and let them know that the American public is sick and tired of the godless killing of the preborn children in America. Yeah. But you see all of the abortions in our nation? That's not the problem. That's a symptom of the real problem. You see prayer and Bible reading being banned from our public schools? That's not the problem. It's a symptom of the real problem. You see the gambling casinos that are raping our nation. That's not the real problem. That's a symptom of the real problem. The fact that our nation spent $41 billion on pornography on the Internet last year. That's not the real problem. That's a symptom of the real problem. The real problem is that we God's people that make up the church have failed to occupy. As a result of it, the Word of God has gone unpublished and the work of God has gone undone. According to 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. the first thing you and I have to do is humble ourselves. You know what that means? That no matter what any preacher has told you, the Lord is not the least bit impressed with your nice car, your nice clothes, your nice house, your big bank account. None of that impresses God. You know what impresses God? A broken heart and a contrite spirit. It will not be into the altars of this church body or filled with people with a heart of repentance for not occupying, only then will real Holy Ghost revival break loose. The only thing that was important enough to bring Jesus out of the ivory palaces of heaven, down to this godless globe, to drive him up and down the streets of Palestine, to lay him prostrate in Gethsemane, to send him to an old rugged cross, was to seek and to save the lost. If it was that important for Jesus when he walked on this earth, shouldn't it be that important For you and me. He said, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. You notice in that verse of Scripture, If we do our four things, God said he'll do his three things together as God's perfect number, the number seven, the number perfection. That's God's telegram from heaven for America today. The Bible says there is only one way for you to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Only Jesus can save you. First of all, you have to admit that you are a sinner. Be willing to turn away from your sin and change the way you think and act. Then believe that Jesus died for you, was buried and rose from the dead. Through prayer, invite Jesus into your heart. And if you've not already done that, let me encourage you to do that with me right now. Pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and cannot save myself. I believe that you are the only Son of God. You died on the cross and gave your precious blood so that I could be saved. I am willing to turn away from my sins. Jesus, right now, I invite you into my heart and life to be my personal Savior. Wash my sins away with the blood you poured out when you died for me on that old rugged cross. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Since you died for me, I will live for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please let us know. We want to get you some information that will help you to live for God.
1: Just as rain can only fall under certain atmospheric conditions, the completion of the process found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 can only happen if we, the people of God, begin to take ourselves through the process of humility, prayer, and turning from our wicked ways. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. If we do our part, God is faithful to do his part. If we would commit to the process, God would release his promises. We would like to encourage you to get a CD or DVD copy of this message to share with your friends and family. Revival Fires now has a podcast that you can access from RevivalFires.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we look forward to connecting with you very soon. Revival Fires International needs your partnership to provide Bibles to American soldiers who are defending our freedoms in the war on terror. Imagine the difference we could make together if we could provide Bibles to as many soldiers as possible. We would like to invite you to partner with Revival Fires International in this vitally important Bibles for U.S. Troops project. Our soldiers serving in the War on Terror should not be sent into battle without Bibles. Each case contains 25 complete Bibles and costs only $4 each to print. You can play an important part by helping us provide Bibles for our servicemen and women that are giving sacrificially every day to keep our nation safe. It's very simple. You supply the Bibles and we deliver them to our troops. If you partner with us in this effort with a gift of $100 or more, you will receive a commemorative edition 16 by 20 full-color picture of the very first prayer in Congress. Also, the names of those in the picture and the picture history are included along with a copy of the actual prayer that was prayed by Rev. Deutsch. This can be yours for a donation of $100 or more to help Revival Fires provide Bibles for our troops defending America in the War on Terror or to provide Truth for Youth Bibles for young people in America's public schools. On this very special Independence Day weekend, let's give a gift that will be a reminder of the incredible freedoms that we have in this great nation. The Bible for Troops Project will be a life-changing effort if we join together and partner with this phenomenal cause. Revival Fires International is committed to deliver Bibles to our troops and to those who need it the most. Please partner with us today as we continue our God-inspired efforts to place a Bible into every person's life who doesn't have a Bible. Your $100 gift will certainly change a life. Let's change America one Bible at a time. Go to RevivalFires.org right now and give towards this incredible project. God bless you, and thanks for listening to today's broadcast.
0: You've been listening to the Revival Fires radio broadcast with Dr. Tim Todd. Revival Fires International is a dynamic ministry fanning the flames of revival across America and around the world through revival services, evangelistic crusades, providing more than 300,000 Bibles for our troops defending America, giving more than 2.5 million Truth For Youth Bibles to America's young people, providing 1 million Bibles for the people of Cuba that have never had a Bible. Providing more than 1 million Bibles for Russian soldiers and more than 2.5 million Bibles for Russian young people. Television and radio ministry and internet evangelism. To receive a CD-DVD combo of today's message or give a one-time tax-deductible financial gift to Revival Fires, To help us continue the vitally important work that God is doing through Revival Fires International, you may go to revivalfires.org or write to us at Revival Fires, P.O. Box 372, West Monroe, Louisiana, 71294. Until our next program, thank you for praying for us. And thank you for helping us take the whole gospel to the whole world before Jesus comes.
2: He said, if my people, which are called by my name, he didn't say if the liberal news media would do it. He didn't say if the conservative talk show host would do it. He didn't say if Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity would do it. He didn't say if the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents would do it. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, God's not counting on the liberal news media. He's not counting on conservative talk show hosts. He's not counting on the Democrats or the Republicans or the Independents. But God is counting on you and me that have been born again and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their
0: land. Welcome to A Few Good Men, an Independence Day special featuring Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of today's issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. Now here's Ray with A Few Good
3: Men. Happy 4th of July. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a wonderful day. 246 years ago, brave patriots gathered in Philadelphia to sign their names to the Declaration of Independence. These 56 men publicly declared their commitment to the self-evident truths that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words form the foundation of our nation and continue to serve as a beacon of hope to people around the world. Most of us are familiar with the Marine Corps slogan, we're looking for a few good men. That's appropriate because throughout history, Every great battle has come down to a handful of soldiers who stood their ground in the face of withering opposition. That's what happened at Gettysburg when a few hundred Union soldiers stood fast at the bloody angle and repulsed Pickett's charge. That's what happened at Bastogne when the beleaguered and encircled men of the 101st Airborne refused to surrender to the Nazis. There is a great truth for today from that popular slogan, God is looking for a few good men, and let's be clear, also a few good women. He searches the earth to find those who will stand strong in the evil day. Why? The answer is not hard to find. A few people united for any cause can change the world. Have you ever heard of the 2% rule? I think I first heard of it during my seminary days when I spoke with the director of a campus ministry at Louisiana State University. He told me that their goal was to enlist 2% of the campus in their programs because they had discovered that with 2%, which seems like a tiny minority, they could change the moral climate of the campus. Robert Bella was a sociologist at the University of California at Berkeley. These are his words. We should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a vision of a just and gentle world. The governing values of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Now just stop. Think about that. That's what sociologist Robert Bella said based on his research. All you need is 2%. Folks, that's not much. All you need is 2%, and you can change an entire culture. I found this confirmed when I was listening to a nationally syndicated radio talk show. At one point, the host commented that their research showed that only 2% of the audience ever attempted to call the show. Only 2%. Yet, one caller can speak to a potential audience of millions of people. In a similar way, politicians tell us that on certain issues, one letter equals 1,000 voters, and on some issues, one letter might equal 10,000 voters. The point is clear. It doesn't take many people to impact a culture. That means you can make a difference right now, right where you are. Why? Because a few people united for any cause can change the world. Now, with that in mind, and with that as background, we turn to our text, Genesis 18. Here is a justly famous story of Abraham pleading for wicked Sodom to be spared. Now, most of us know the story in general outline. When God inspected the city of Sodom, he found sin so great that he determined to destroy it. Abraham intercedes with God, asking him to spare the city on behalf of the righteous who still live there. Now, what transpires is a rather amusing exchange between Abraham and God, as Abraham uses all his persuasive powers to induce God to spare the city. So we ask the Lord, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham said, Lord, since I've begun, let me speak further, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people instead of 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. And you get down to verse 30, Genesis 18. Please don't be angry, my Lord. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find thirty. Then Abraham said, Since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only twenty. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the twenty. Finally Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. And the chapter ends this way. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. Now, what are we supposed to make of this amazing story? Earlier, I called it amusing, but it certainly wasn't funny to Abraham. After all, his family, part of his family, was there in Sodom. He wasn't just doing this as a theoretical exercise. He wanted to spare his loved ones. So he asked God, would you not spare it for 50? Then Abraham says 45, and God agrees, and Abraham gets him down 40, 30, 20, and finally to 10. Would God spare Sodom for the sake of only 10 righteous people? The answer is yes. At that point, either God indicated he would go no lower, or Abraham decided not to press his luck. The NIV study Bible suggests that he stopped at 10 because that number equaled Lot's wife and daughters and their husbands. That's possible too. For 10 people, the great city of Sodom could be spared. Archaeologists tell us that Sodom may have been a town of perhaps 600 to 1,000 people. Yet, it could have been spared if there had been only 10 righteous people. Now, let's look at three lessons from this ancient story. First, the character of God. No doubt the central lesson of our passage deals with the character of God. It tells us in the first place about his knowledge. He knows all about the sin of Sodom. He has heard the outcry of the city. God sees and God knows. He sees every injustice in this evil world. James Montgomery Boyce catches this truth well. Listen, can't you hear those cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, and terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There is another cry. It is the cry of an old man assaulted by a gang of tough street youths. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around the face and the shoulders. There is the cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And there, the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a man so trapped by our dehumanizing welfare system that he has given up. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the raucous cries in the thousands of bars that scar the faces of our city, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts, the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait, those cries are only a fraction of the millions of cries that are rising every moment of every day, from every street, in every city and village of our land. Cries that are all heard by God, felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly How shall we excuse ourselves when the only righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusation that has reached Him? This passage also teaches us about God's justice. He will not wink at sin or say, Boys will be boys or live and let live. He will always do what is right. Abraham's whole prayer is based on the question in verse 25, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But from this story, we also learn a powerful lesson about God's mercy. When he heard the outcry of Sodom's sin, he personally came down to investigate the case to see if things were as bad as he had heard. Furthermore, he allowed Abraham to intercede when he could have destroyed the city from the very beginning. But we see God's mercy most clearly in this one fact. He would have spared the city of Sodom for only ten righteous people. It is often said prayer changes things. Indeed, it does. But we need to think clearly about this. Since God knows all things from beginning to end, Prayer doesn't change God's mind, but it may change our mind. In this case, prayer changed Abraham's mind about God. He knew he was just, but was he also merciful? After the prayer, he could say with confidence that God is merciful, not only for hearing his prayer, but also for agreeing to spare the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. There is a lesson here also about the marks of effective intercession. When Abraham prays for Sodom, it is the first intercessory prayer in the Bible. To intercede is to plead the case of another person. When a friend speaks up on behalf of a student about to be punished, that friend is interceding. Likewise, when Abraham asked God to spare Sodom, he was interceding in the highest court of the universe. But that raises an interesting question. Why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom? After all, God already knew the facts, and He already knew what He was going to do. Doesn't that render Abraham's request useless? To say it that way is to come up against the greatest mystery of prayer. If God already knows what He is going to do, why pray? Some of the answers to that question may be seen in our text. First, He allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. Second, he did it so that we would know that he, God, takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. Third, Abraham's prayer shows us the power righteous people can have. Fourth, in a larger sense, it teaches us the value of intercession. This is what prayer is all about. So, we can say confidently that Abraham's intercession teaches us something about God and something about prayer. It's important to realize Abraham doesn't question God's right to judge nor his decision to judge the wicked. He's not saying, who do you think you are or what right do you have to destroy Sodom? Unlike modern man, Abraham understands that a holy God has the right to judge his own creation. In all that he says, he implicitly recognizes the sovereignty of God. Why then does he pray? The answer is found in verse 23 when he asks, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Good question. How can a righteous God treat righteous people the same way he treats the unrighteous? The answer is, he can't. God values righteousness even more than he hates unrighteousness. This is the basis of Abraham's prayer. As I study this text, I find four characteristics of biblical prayer. Number one, modesty. Abraham didn't know what God would do. Number two, humility. He didn't demand anything from God. Number three, persistence. He came back again and again, six times in all. Number four, persuasion. He based everything he said on God's character. And for all that, His prayer wasn't answered. Sodom was destroyed. Sometimes our prayers won't be answered either, at least not in the way that we prayed them, but it wasn't Abraham's fault, nor is it always our fault. And with that truth in mind, we return again to the most fundamental truth about prayer, which is that when we pray, we must always say, thy will be done. Finally, this passage teaches us something crucial about how the righteous can save a city. When Abraham and God finished their discussion, the bottom line had come to this. Ten righteous people would have saved Sodom. That's all. Just ten righteous people to save the city. As you ponder that truth and think about the great cities of today, recall the words of Proverbs 14:24: Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 28:12 reminds us that when the righteous triumph, there is great elation. But when the wicked rise to power, men go into hiding. That's what happened in Sodom. Wicked men had risen to power and the righteous had gone into hiding. Whatever influence they once had for good had been dissipated by the overwhelming power of evil. Now, how does this principle work? First, the righteous must be in the city. Only people in Sodom could save Sodom. Second, the righteous must be righteous. Third, the righteous must speak out. That is, they must make their presence felt in the affairs of life. I read an article by the pastor of a large Midwestern church. In it, He argued that evangelicals have become too enamored of politics at the expense of our calling to preach the gospel. We need, he said, to, quote, take politics out of the sanctuary. Now, I always struggle a bit when I read an article like that. After all, he's certainly right in his basic argument that only the gospel has the power to change the human heart. And it's true. Any of us, whether we're in the pew or behind the pulpit, any of us can become too enamored of the nitty gritty of political give and take that we may lose sight of ultimate, eternal, supernatural, life-transforming gospel realities. That's always a risk, isn't it? And there is a danger that by focusing too much on moral issues, you may offend the very people you're trying to reach with the gospel. And you may end up with a bad reputation in your community. Actually, that's going to happen anyway if you're just faithful to the Word of God and preach the gospel on a regular basis. And and I do want to say, it's not worth it to win a political referendum if we lose the battle for the souls of men and women. That much we all agree on. But how much should Christians speak out on moral issues? Question. Would Sodom have been a better place if Lot had spoken out instead of apparently going along with the moral debauchery? There are times when faithfulness demands that Christians as individuals and churches as institutions speak out for good and against evil. Was Martin Niemöller wrong to speak out against Hitler in the 1930s? Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrong to protest segregation in the 1960s? Are pro-lifers wrong to speak out against abortion today? Are we wrong to speak out against transgenderism and in favor of humanity as male and female? In these days of moral decline and total spiritual confusion, are we not obligated to speak the truth? If we don't, who will? As the salt of the earth, our words may sting at first, but then they will bring healing. United with others who share our concern, we can have great impact for good in our nation. When great moral issues are at stake, silence is treason. By speaking out, we can show how the church applies the gospel to every area of life. When the testimony is given with a winsome spirit, it can be a great encouragement to others. I'm sure you've heard it said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Therefore, A, we focus on the gospel, and B, we speak out on moral issues when necessary. Our great need today lies in two areas. Number one, moral courage, and number two, a commitment to prayer. We need the courage to speak out and stand up for God, whatever the cost, and we need the commitment to prayer because our words and actions come to nothing without the help of heaven. On the basis of this passage, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is really good. You can make a difference. A few people united for any cause can change the world. What's the bad news? This passage makes it clear that it is not the presence of evil, but the absence of good that brings God's judgment. 10 people could have saved Sodom. No matter what we may think about the sin of Sodom, this much is beyond debate. God wanted to spare that wicked city. What does God see when He looks at your family, your school, your place of work, your neighborhood, your village, your city? Where are the righteous men and women who can make an impact for eternity? Now, this message has several basic applications. First, it stands as a strong warning to those living in sin. Don't mistake God's patience for unconcern. He destroyed Sodom. He will one day cast you into hell your only hope is to turn from your sin and cast yourself on jesus christ to cry out for his mercy and ask him to forgive you for all your many sins his blood can save but even christ's blood is of no avail unless you trust him with all your heart i close with a word to christians when all is said and done your prayers matter more than your politics god would have spared Sodom. Not because of Abraham's protest, there was none, but because of his prayer. If we take this passage seriously, it forces us to consider one question above all others. Who are you praying for? Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Think about this. You can reach people through prayer who won't listen to your words or even look you in the eye. They can stop you from speaking, but they can't stop you from praying. What is your Sodom? Is it your school, your neighborhood, your office, your workplace, your family? Go back and be salt. Be light. Who knows? You may end up saving an entire city. I begin by talking about the Marine Corps slogan, A Few Good Men. What happened to the men who signed the Declaration of Independence? The late Rush Limbaugh spoke often about the influence of his father. He mentioned a talk his father gave about the signers of the Declaration, calling it the men who risk everything. What happened to those men? Here's the answer of Rush Limbaugh's father. Of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardships during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned. In each case with brutal treatment, several lost wives, sons, or entire families. One lost his 13 children. Two wives were brutally treated. All were at one time or another the victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned, yet not one defected or went back on his pledged word. Their honor and the nation they sacrificed so much to create is still intact. Let me add this word. Who knows the difference God's people could make if we decided to take a stand for righteousness in our own generation. On this 4th of July, let's take time to enjoy family and friends, go to the beach, get together with some friends, grill out in the backyard, watch a parade, fly the flag, sing God Bless America. On this 4th of July, our God is looking for a few good men and a few good women. Will you take a stand? Will you pray? Will you speak out? Will you join the few and the brave? America waits for your answer. Thank you for listening to this 4th of July special broadcast. May God bless America now and forever.
0: You've been listening to the American Family Radio Independence Day special, A Few Good Men, featuring Ray Pritchard. If you would like to connect with Ray or learn more about Keep Believing Ministries, visit keepbelieving.com. To hear this message again, look for the podcast on AFR.net. A Few Good Men is an American Family Radio special presentation.